Warning, the following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for listeners that are under the age of 18, are easily offended, or get annoyed listening to the rantings of holier-than-thou-know-it-alls that are anything but. Alright, fair warning. Look, I understand the show's really late this week, and it's all Clarissa's fault, but whatever. You'll notice that as you listen to this, it's going to run longer than usual. The volume levels are going to be kind of all over the place. I apologize in advance, but hey... It was either this or it'd be even later than that, like next week kind of thing. So with that in mind, the only possible celebrity endorsement for this week is this. Hey, hey, this is Joey Snackpants, and when I'm not working or doing stuff to, to like, eat and, you know, take a shit or something, I'm listening to the Anime World Order on my iPod. Woot. Welcome back to Anime World Order for show number 13. Today is Tuesday, the March 28th, and sorry we've been late the past couple weeks, but uh, things have been kind of hectic lately. Life is great. Yeah. Yeah, as always. Yeah, it's like last week my grandmother died right before we recorded the podcast, and this week my uncle died right before oh recording the podcast. You're doing well, really we well, Daryl, on this. Well... <laughs> I don't know. That's just how it is. Mm. Uh, introductions are in order, I suppose, for those who've never listened to the show before. Uh, let's see. I guess since I'm talking, I'm Daryl Surratt, host, maybe. I'm the inventor of the hypermagnetic death ray that simultaneously taught us how to love and how to hate. And I'm Gerald Rathcold. I once karate punched a guy in the face for no reason. And I'm Clarissa, the master of the 17 different forms of wavering fist, Seelong Kung Fu, an art that inspires fear in beginners and experts alike. By ourselves, each formidable opponents, but together, something so much more than the sum of our parts. So each week, over an hour, where we talk about anime stuff, I... Sorry, David. You know, I know you're listening, but you, you got your facts mixed up. <laughs> We're the only ones who, who have the truth. So, what, what the hell are we doing this episode? Manga stuff. <laughs> I'm not doing manga stuff. Yeah, all right. Well, we're being dorks again. That's that's what we're doing this week. I, I'm actually since everyone else has reviewed manga in weeks past. Uh, last week, since we reviewed Monster by Naoki Urasawa, I'm going to review his brand new series Pluto, which is uh, still running. I think there's only about two, maybe three volumes of the manga are out right now. And I'm going to be doing another Creator Spotlight, our second Creator Spotlight, and I'm going to be taking a look at the rather unknown director, Katsuhito Akiyama. And he's done a couple of, quite a lot of work. He's uh, worked on uh, Bubblegum Crisis and Gal Force, and uh, more recently things like Giver and Armitage. I'm going to be talking about the classic and often overlooked manga series from Eroika with Love. Being released by CMX, right? Yes, but uh, it's actually not bad. It, it, does, it didn't get the Tenjo Tenge treatment, so... A story about hair with a man attached to it. <laughs> That's uh, very true. Because that woman obviously spends more time drawing that guy's hair than anything else. It's I, the I, most beautifully drawn hair I've ever so. seen in any manga ever. And now we'll move on to our weekly uh, listener response 
section. And boy, do we have some catching up to do. Yeah, I, I, yeah we do. <laughs> We're bad. Again, We're sorry. <laughs> we might just do an episode where we just answer your email, but we're not going to do it if people are, would be like, oh, that's boring. Don't do that. So let us know. I still think we should just do it and then just read their email responses. Saying, no, don't show. do it. Yeah. It's a good idea. <laughs> but uh, our first email comes from Elaine Mendes, and we got this back in around uh, March 6th. So this is kind of catching up again. And he asks us three questions, and he says, How do you think Tokyo Pop is going to do with their experiment to release Shonan Junai Gumi as slightly more expensive wideband books? I would love to see it succeed as a way of releasing some classic manga at a price point that would attract more wary shoppers. On the other hand, I think people are going to end up rejecting it because it's older than GTO, and people just don't want to try old manga. Oh no, not as older than GTO. When, when did that come out? 1997? Well, you know, I actually have no idea what this, uh, these Shonan Junai Gumi wideband releases are like. Do you, do you at least know what wideband releases mean? Yeah. Okay, d just describe that for people who may not. No, they're larger formats, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, they're, uh, what, A4? Instead of uh, A3 or whatever? The I think so. Uh, I don't think it's A5. Okay, yeah, they're the larger format releases, and they're usually done... Uh, wasn't... Uh, was Akira as it was released here in A5? A I think so. I, mean, I, c I could actually get the books right now and check, but I'd have to get up. As, as for, you know, what we think about that, there are a couple of works that I was kind of disappointed that they were released in such a small format because I think some of the art deserves to be printed in a wide, in a larger format. Yeah. But I guess I wouldn't necessarily say that everything should be released like that, since I think the reason that manga has exploded as it has is because it's ten bucks or less, right. and uh, you get a whole book. I think that it's probably, a, might be a good move to do a little bit older manga and a little bit cheaper, so yeah, maybe some people will pick it up if... If it's yeah, because it's either going to be 31 volumes at the standard, what we generally consider regular graphic novel size, yeah. but I think that as long as the prices aren't unreasonable, that people will go for it. Oh, just to back up, since uh, the reason they mentioned GTO was because this uh, manga, Shonan Junaigumi, is actually the prequel series to GTO, just to get that out of the way mm. for people right. who didn't know. But yeah, I'm interested in seeing this, and I'm more interested in seeing what the, what other uh, series they've got planned to release in this format. They're actually calling it Young GTO, as I check, which is smart. Like, Young GTO, and then the subtitle shown on Junaigumi, because otherwise yeah. people wouldn't know. Right. And what's interesting is that GTO was one of the first manga that was released in Tokyo Pop's format as they have it now, their standardized format. Yeah. And so they're releasing the prequel in maybe this new format, so maybe they're hoping... Maybe to... they're hoping it'll, they'll strike gold once again, right. and that people will adopt this new format through GTO. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I wish them well, and I hope they choose some good works that deserve to get that large printing. But uh, I'm... I'm, I'm just glad they're still out. printing manga <laughs> Yeah. for a change. And he goes on to ask, what is your overall opinion of modern fandom? I get the impression Gerald and Daryl are a little harsher on modern fandom than Clarissa. Is it all in my head? No, I guess it's, it's all in your head in a way. No, no it's not. not. <laughs> Gerald and Daryl are way harsher. They, they hate everyone. Listen, they... I'm finding the truth, Clarissa. <laughs> I'm going into the pits. I'm going into the trenches, and I'm you know, finding the truth out of people that you or Gerald would never, ever approach. 
Because these people have stories to tell, and they're underrepresented in the corporate media. I'm not the one who hates all these people. I wouldn't have a problem talking the to them. The Search for the Truth is a, a grassroots, global, <laughs> unembedded, international... Man, fuck Amy Goodman. Whatever. But, um... My opinion of modern fandom isn't really all that harsh, but it is based on one observation, and it's just this attitude I generally consider a prevailing one that... People in the modern fandom, quote-unquote, and when I say modern fandom, I mean, let's say the last, I don't know, five years, three years, whatever. They just don't seem to care the way that other people did. It's not an issue of, oh, these people came in on this show, which I don't like, and they're fanatical about this show. It's just they don't really seem to care about the thing I keep seeing is like, oh, it's got this very fad-like mentality, like, oh, well... Um, into this, but not really that much. And it just, I don't, what happened to the people who were just really passionate? Yeah, see, I don't know. I, I guess that I tend to think that those people, like you're talking about, the ones that really just don't care very much, and maybe they're just there to go to the rave or play video games or whatever, I guess I tend to not really consider them as being in the fandom. Because to me, like, fandom is different from just... Liking something. Just watching like, a show, correct. Right. You know, to me, fandom is different from just being a fan of something, like, and there's nothing wrong with being either one, you know? Plenty of people just sit home and watch anime, or they watch, you know, say, Buffy the Vampire Slayer or whatever, and they like the show, and they enjoy it, and that's fine, and there's nothing wrong with that. But fandom, to me, has always been about that kind of extra level of engagement that it's not just, you know... You're not a person who just watches the show and likes it, but you're somebody who wants to, you know, cosplay and you want to, you know, or make AMVs or write fan fiction or write essays or just engage in some kind of active level, even if it's just maybe, you know, posting a lot on mailing lists or, or I communities. think really what separates it, as, as you were saying, is more when there's a discussion element to your love of the show, is not just sitting down and watching it, is when you... You do discuss it. Right. It's, it's about interacting with other fans on top of and, and, and engaging with the, the show. Well, then I guess my issue then isn't really like a harsh opinion on modern fandom so much that I just don't seem to be seeing the modern mm. fandom anymore. Yeah. Like it's just I just keep running into people and it's a good thing, but it's like I'm at a convention. I'm hoping to maybe find some right. fandom types. Yeah. And I more and more often, I just seem to be finding people who just watch the show, but maybe they yeah. went to all this trouble to make a costume, not really because they're that big a fan of the show so much as... Because everyone else is doing it? Yeah. They're, they're there for the attention. And so it's not like I hate them. It's just like... All right. But yeah, show some spirit, people. That's all we ask. But I don't know. Have well, some Gerald, dedication. Well, Gerald, I don't know. Do you Do you just like hate like, all fandom? Because I know, like, you're always... You seem to, like, hate, like, AMVs and cosplay and everything that's not just sitting around watching shows in viewing rooms or sitting at industry panels. I, I feel like all of that fandom stuff... I don't know how to explain it, because I find there's maybe a handful of AMVs that have ever been made that I think are actually worth anything, because I just don't really get AMVs and cosplay. Again... I have a great appreciation for someone who does a very good costume mm -hmm. of a show for the only reason that they love the mm -hmm. show. That this is 
this is their way of saying that they love the right. show, that maybe because they don't do a good job of sitting down and just discussing with people. Mm -hmm. But uh, so much of it is what I see what Daryl was talking about, was people, well, you know, I want attention. Mm -hmm. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dress up as, you know, the 30th Naruto yeah. and jump around and act like an idiot all mm. weekend. And that stuff I just, I just hate. I wish that people who are anime fans would come to conventions for the anime. And uh, on with that, <laughs> he uh, asks another question which might explode. But he e says, x p l o d e. You know, he says, "Warning: This question is being asked just to make trouble. What do you think of Mega Tokyo?" Ba -ba -ba! Oh, ah! Honestly, what is there to say about Mega Tokyo that hasn't been said a billion other times already by other people who are smarter than us? I mean, really, it boils down to the basic idea that Fred Gallagher is a guy who's highly successful. And his level of success isn't really proportional to the amount of effort that he puts out. I mean, it's been several years, and there hasn't really been much progression in his story. Mm -hmm. His artwork has not really noticeably improved that much. Mm -hmm. It's like Rob, what Rob Liefeld is to feet, Fred Gallagher is to hands. <laughs> and also, he's making enough money that he can put out this webcomic for a living. Like, he doesn't need to hold any other job, and yet he still can't do his stuff on time mm. and yet he fancies himself as a manga creator yet m manga creators put uh, regularly put out like 30 pages a week mm -hmm. and Fred can do 10 a month and the few people who do like even guys like Yukito Kishiro the author of Battle Angel Alita right. or Kentaro Miura who does Berserk who do phenomenal artwork they can still generally do a chapter every month or two. Writing-wise, I mean, mm -hmm. once Fred bought the rights to the series from Rodney, the whatever appeal that was really in the show, yeah. kind of there was a splintering faction of people who thought Mega Tokyo should be like this, and Fred's vision, mm. which was, I want to emulate shoujo manga right. and dating simulations. Yeah, I was about to say, I think it's more the, the dating sim type of... Uh, Saying then than shoujo. <laughs> he's living the dream, mm. and his fans are vicariously living the dream through him yeah. because he's a guy, you know, his story is this very pandering f fanboy in America kind of dream, like guys stuck in Japan, and then they've got Japanese girls, all of them fawning over him, and they get to just live the life. Yeah. And he himself is a guy who just kind of sits at home and draws this comic and anytime he has even the slightest setback or failure he can just whine and complain about it and mm -hmm. have a huge support base of people to say oh no you're yeah. great you're wonderful i think i actually um dislike the the movement and the fandom around mega tokyo more than i dislike mega tokyo itself just because absolutely because he's created like, a monster i think i wouldn't it wouldn't bother me, and I think it wouldn't bother a lot of people as much if people didn't, you know, treat it like the second coming of, you know, whatever. I think, you know, I I think that Fred's artwork is alright, but I agree that I haven't really seen that much improvement. I haven't kept up with Mega Tokyo. I haven't read it in a while. So, take that, you know... It doesn't matter salt, if you haven't read it in three years. Yeah, you can easily catch up. Yeah. And that's the other thing. The dude's website. You do this for a fucking living. This is your job. Hmm. There's no excuse for after five years, however long that thing's been up, for the characters 
to page to just say, I'll do this when I feel like it. Because yeah. there's still nothing there. And now there's like 30 characters, yeah. all of whom are basically, I have no character, I just have a mysterious past. <laughs> which is the traditional anime creator's way of saying, I have no idea what the fuck, I just want to put this person in there yeah. and figure it out later. And then he doesn't figure it out. And what annoys me more, more than anything is I go to Otakon on a regular basis. And Otakon, there's, Fred Gallagher seems to be there all the time. And there are these really interesting guests there. There's anime directors from Japan and things like that. But th when they have their panel, there's maybe 20 people in that room, 30 people. There's 200 people lined up to see Fred Gallagher. Mm. More, More than, than that. that. Yeah. More than, oh my god, I hate it. Like, what the fuck are you all lined up for this guy when there is some real, honest-to-goodness... Talent. Interesting creator, the talent there, and then Fred Gallagher is taking you know two hundred people or four hundred people or whatever. Man, that just pisses me off. I don't know. It's because he's created a monster. He's become the whole OEL. I'm an American manga artist movement started with Fred Gallagher. The whole I can just draw and ape the conventions of my favorite shows and call myself a manga artist and that's a romantic ideal started with Fred Gallagher yeah. and his fans gravitate towards that. Yeah. There's no reason for him to be as whiny a fuck as he is because, I mean, come on. The dude got married. The dude is wealthy enough that he can draw a comic book for a living. Not many people can do no, that. No, not many people can do that at all, especially web comics. And, That's very rare. And yet he's still really self-absorbed, and all, whenever you try and levy a criticism at him, he's just like, yeah, I suck, all right. Because like, he's... That's the defense that's commonly given. It's like, oh, well, Fred admits that he sucks. It's like, no, come on. That's the whole fandom. The modern fandom is kind of encapsulated within Fred Gallagher. It's not like I have anything against him as a person, since I don't really know him. Mm -hmm. But all he represents is kind of all I dislike about the modern fandom, to right. go back to your second question there. It's all there in Megatokyo. Uh, we knew that that question was going to, you know, explode. Well, he did but, say well, that he, guess... he asked it to make trouble. And he does end off with saying... Hey, Gerald, if nothing else, you have one fan in me. I think you do well as Ken the Eagle to Daryl shoot it with a bird missile, Joe the Condor. Yeah, that's I true. I guess that makes Clarissa June hey, the Swan. That's also I, true. I, I take offense to that. <laughs> June's uh, cool. Plays a pretty mean electric guitar, Clarissa. The, well, yeah, at least yeah. I get the yo-yo of death. <laughs> so that's that takes care of that. And moving right along, this next email is from David Elizald. And he writes, Hey guys, been listening to your guys for a while now. I know how to identify a true otaku now, because if you guys aren't, I don't know what is. Tr true otaku are the people that I've interviewed for the truth, David. Anyway, back on subject, when I heard you talking about older anime, I wanted to know what anime titles you would suggest that I could watch. Alright, well, it's kind of this entire podcast is <laughs> about what anime That's titles you suggest that you could watch. Um, he continues, Some of the newer stuff that I've been seeing I don't really like because, like video games, is becoming overly pretty without adding any real content. Exceptions, of course, being Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex and Full Metal Alchemist. I'm not sure if this qualifies as old to you, but some of the earliest age-wise anime I've seen is Project Echo, Iria, Zerum the good. Animation... That's yeah. good. Galaxy Express 3.9. Yes. That's excellent. Yeah, and he even goes on to say, wish the fan subgroup finished more. So he's talking about Galaxy Express 3.9, the TV oh, wow. series, not even the movie. Very, yeah, that's, that's nice. very good stuff. Dirty Pair Flash. Which is uh, the one of the worst first episodes I've ever seen of any anime I actually in have history. not watched that show because that first episode was so bad that I haven't been able to get past it. 
Right. I generally go with the original Dirty Pair more than Flash, yeah. though some people like Flash more. Mm. Uh, Akira, of yeah. course, uh, staple classic, yes. as well as Robotech. Right. And the Pat Labor movies, two being my favorite. Way to go there, David. Excellent. That's a good one. Yeah, I happen to idolize the character Arakawa in Pat Labor movie two. For years, I that was just my deal. I got my old pair of glasses because those were the ones he had. My hair is still cut like how his is, and you haven't changed your facial expression in five <laughs> years, like he doesn't. So he, he can change his facial expression. He's just really cool. Doesn't have a facial expression at all. He's. I, I'd also like to dress like him as well, but there you go. So I hate cosplayers, but I'm a s step worse. The difference is that I don't act on my impulses. <laughs> Hope I didn't make this too long for you. Keep up the good work. Let's see yeah. other older stuff. Um, Bubblegum Crisis and Gal Force, like you mentioned, talking about Akiyama. Yamato. Yeah, Yamato. I'll Captain Harlock, maybe. Also, the original Gundam movies. I'd, I would avoid the original Gundam TV series. I think the Gundam movies are much superior. I mean, this entire show is nothing but us uh, saying what people should watch. So keep listening. And right. We'll let you know some more good stuff. And we're really happy to say that we have an email from Michael Wishlow who says, uh, Hello, Daryl, Gerald, and Clarissa. My name is Michael Wishlow, and I just came across your podcast. And both my wife and Exter and myself listened to Volume 8 and 9 Whoa. podcast and rather enjoyed your old-school views expressed. Just to give a little background on us, my wife, Anna Exter, is a well-known anime translator who has done such shows as Trigun, Saber Marionette J, Fighting Spirit, uh, Hajime no Ippo, for those of you who might not recognize the English title, and recently Kyokara Mao. Myself, I've been into anime since 1984, starting with shows such as Yamato, Cat's Eye, and Space Cobra. Lived in Tokyo from 1986 to 1991, and graduated with an economics degree from Sofia University in Tokyo. And I've done lots of fan-sub translation work for several outfits in the mid to late 90s, including Arctic Animation. Arctic uh -oh. Animation. Oh no! <laughs> it takes balls to own up to being the <laughs> translator for Arctic Animation. <laughs> I've got their fan subs for um, uh, Mellow Link. Oh, yeah, so. yeah. I think somewhere I might actually have their old fan subs of Pat Labor, which now costs $100 for the whole thing. So buy that. But I remember their subtitles were like, I hate Kanaka, so if you have a problem with that, screw you, homo. <laughs> <laughs> I had an old fan dub called Terminator 3 Target Arctic Animation. It was... Use three by three eyes. It was actually a parody sub. They used three by three eyes footage. The premise was they got a copy of Kimagri Orange Road and were just infuriated at the video quality and the subtitles, and so they went to Canada to kill them. <laughs> but, uh, he also says I co-translated Ultramaniac with Anna last year as part of my debut as a professional anime translator. Although I do corporate translation work for other companies. Uh, I greatly enjoyed, laughed my ass off at your views and review of Golgo 13. It is a guilty pleasure watching it. Of course, Anna hates it. And I guess that that makes uh, Golgo 13, that kind of makes it like the anime version of uh, Scarface. All women hate it and all men like it. Yeah. Uh, maybe Scarface maybe... in conjunction with the Three Stooges. I was about to say, maybe more <laughs> like the Three Stooges. I don't know, I think I know some women who like Scarface, so... But no, generally the long-running right, statement, right. women don't like Scarface or the yeah. Three Stooges. 
When it comes to anime, I'm solidly stuck in the 80s. I simply have not been impressed with much of the anime released in the last decade. My current viewing schedule includes Double Zeta Gundam, Yume Senshi Wingman, Tokimeki Tonight, Kabamaru, City Hunter, Mirai Keisatsu Urashiman, Giant Gorg, and Dragonar. There's some in that list that even I don't know what they are. Like, I've never seen Wingman, or Tokimeki yeah. Tonight, or Kabamaru. I've never heard of Kabumaru. So yeah, this is yeah, how powerful people are... Yeah. emailing us to be invoking right. titles that we don't know about. <laughs> Although, you but know, I'm interested. Yeah. That's good stuff. Yeah, and yeah. there's a lot of good stuff in there. Fucking Giant right. Gorg. That's exactly. what I want to see. And I actually Dragon liked Dragonar, what little I saw yeah. of it, even though Dragonar's claim to fame is that it's a really bad Gundam ripoff. Alright, and he continues to say, in reference to your broadcast this week, oh yeah, this... This week, uh, Well, but... yeah, it's not this week anymore, but... Oh yeah, this old school fan does have a high speed internet connection, can write C++, VB, and Java, and has been on the net since 96. You might want to give some old school fans some credit. We never meant to indicate that, you know, we thought old school fans were, were not on the internet. And... Yeah, we just meant Steve Harrison. <laughs> I do look forward to listening to the other podcasts you have up and future shows. And he, he was very kind to email us back later to say that I've listened to you guys lament about the fact that so many old anime series are completely unknown to the North American audience and will never see the light of day here. I would like to share one of my favorite anime gems that is virtually unknown to anime fans, probably even you guys. He's almost right. I've heard of this show that he's talking about, but I had never actually seen it before. I think I'd heard of the show, but someone had told me it was about, like, racing toy cars. Oh, really? Hmm. Well, let me, let me go on and, and tell all the... The listeners, what this show is about. He says, I'm seriously thinking about translating and subtitling it, so any feedback would be greatly appreciated. The series I speak of is simply called F. F was a very popular racing manga done by manga artist Noboru Rokuda and was serialized in Shogakukan Big Comics from 1986 to 1993. In eight years in print, it produced a total of 28 volumes and the anime series in 1988. F chronicles the life of Akagi Gunma, who goes from being a country bumpkin to a world champion F1 driver. Should I read this like whole description? Because this whole summary is really long. No, it's, it's really long. He goes on to summarize uh, the rest of the show. We can put the summary in the, tr in the show notes. We'll, we'll put that up. We'll put the full summary up in the show notes for people who are interested. Yeah, he says it ran for 32 episodes against yeah. City Hunter. So maybe that's why nobody knows about <laughs> maybe. it. But it was produced by Koichi Mashimo, who also worked on Dirty Pair Project Eden, Irresponsible Captain Tyler, Night on the Galactic Railroad, and Tsubasa Chronicle. Yeah, he did Noir, and, uh, too. Some we'll good seiyus. To Toshihiko Seki's in it. And uh, he, was, he was very kind in trying to uh, get the show some attention and get some feedback. He's put up the first two episodes. Uh, they're not subbed yet. But it's not that hard to follow what's going on. Uh, and we'll put up a link in the show notes to these first two episodes so you guys out there can download these and see if you're interested in it. And, and let, let us, us know, know. And, and we'll let him know. He also said you may post the following email. Yeah, we'll post that in the show notes. We'll post his email so people can get back to him on whether they're interested. But yeah, thanks a whole lot for that, Michael. That's, yeah. that's pretty awesome. And I'm actually really familiar with Anna Exeter yeah. since I'm, I'm looking at my shelf now, and I have got some Dirty Pair TV uh, VHS fan subs that she did oh, yeah, a yeah. long time ago. And I also really love this AMV. Again, like of the handful of AMVs that I actually like, she did one that I like. 
and uh, this was one that was set entirely to old stuff since I think it was done in the old VHS oh, you know, wow. two you know one <laughs> tape deck days yeah. and it was set to it was set to and I'm people are gonna laugh at this but it was set to Right Said Fred Don't Talk <laughs> Just Kiss and he had more than one yes. song. Yes, he did. He had actually had three big songs. Well, he had one That's big it. song here. Four, I guess the actually, other ones were big in Europe. Yeah, they were. Deeply Dippy was enormous <laughs> in Europe. But um, <laughs> that was a real song. <laughs> Lol, Europe. But I, but I love that uh, that AMV a lot. She even used Time Stranger. Not Time Etranger. Time Stranger, which is an obscure 1986 movie that we'll talk about one day. Yeah, Anna Exter is pretty interesting. I remember years ago there was this show on Canadian TV, like this animated cartoon. I think it was called, like, Knighthood or something like that. It was basically about either Arsene Lupin or something like mm. that. V much like how Lupin the Third was inspired by those original yeah. Lupin stories, this was also about that, but it was like this Canadian uh, animated show, and she had a fan site for it. You know, I, I actually don't know if I can remember that much specifically um, stuff by her that I've seen, but I do know that I, I definitely recognize her name from fan subs and, and whatnot, so that was really cool to get an email from from him, from her husband at least, yeah. And yeah, Knighthood was a French... Canadian co-production. And we'll get to more of our mail backlog in future episodes, but if you'd like to email us and let us know what you think about any of the things we talk about, you can email us at animeworldorder at gmail.com, or you can even leave us a voicemail at 206-666-4AWO. That's 206-666-4296. Let's use working to restore power. Okay, and with that, let's news. And this week we've got a very slow news week, not a whole lot going on. So uh, there was to be something the pattern that... lately. Yeah, well, it, it's just previous to con season. When it gets con season, it'll be just the news and nothing else. <laughs> In one thing of note, over the weekend, I actually attended two anime events, and one of them was uh, called the Anime Culture Festival, or something like that, and that was in Miami. And apparently it was supposed to be attended by Mitsuhisa Ishikawa, who was the uh, president of Production IG, but instead it was attended by Maki Terashima, who is the international public relations manager and the producer of some of Production IG's work. And one thing that she mentioned again and again was that IGPX was doing very, very badly. And now IGPX is a show on Toonami, on Cartoon Network in America. It's significant because it is the first original show for Toonami, and it is the first TV series that Production IG has co-produced. At least, Production IG is co-produced with America. This is interesting because the show is doing extremely badly in ratings, and I actually went to Best Buy today, and they have a whole shelf of IGPX box sets. And these are actually disc and box. And if you take a look at these, they're these padded boxes, and they take up a lot of space. And these were marked down to 15 bucks from, I think, 30 bucks or something. So not only is it doing badly in ratings, it's doing badly in uh, DVD sales as well. Well, that sucks, in a sense. Not that, I mean, I don't watch IGPX myself, but just the fact that it didn't catch on means that we're probably not going to see any more collaborations between Cartoon Network putting up money for anime. So between... Yeah. 
the second season of Big O didn't do very well for them, and so that's no, why didn't. they said they weren't going to make a third season. And now this, so probably means we're just going to see lots more things like 12-ounce mouse instead Maybe of... Maybe they should just invest in better shows? On one hand, I want to say it's unfortunate, but IGPX wasn't very well received, mainly, I think, because it wasn't a very good show. Yeah, I mean... It seems so really uh, generic. Mm-hmm. Very paint-by-numbers. One of the big complaints that I heard there, and some guy actually did come up and say this, and he said that the main character is just boring. Mm. And I don't know if any of one out there has seen the show and agrees or disagrees, but the main character doesn't really have much personality. It takes him about 13 episodes to develop one. That definitely will hurt a show if your characters are very unlikable. Yeah, I know some shows can be carried on the strength of the supporting cast if the main character really isn't all that great, but I don't know if the supporting cast is all that amazing either, so... In general, storyline itself is pretty much just space NASCAR or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's nothing very special, and they paid a lot of money to get Mm -hmm. Haley Joel Osment to play the main character. I don't think that was worth it. I think it's a total waste of money. I think they they got Bang Zoom, and I think Bang Zoom has got very good staple actors that are there, and could have done it for a lot less money than Haley Joel Osment probably asked for. Mark Hamill is in this dub, too, as well as a couple of others. Hey, Mark Hamill. Yeah, Mark Hamill's a good guy. Everyone's favorite Joker. I wonder if Mark Hamill sounds really artificial and forced now that it's a Bang Zoom dub, or maybe there's no Japanese track for them to try and mimic. Because that's Bang Zoom's deal. It's like every dub they make sounds like extremely fake and anime acting like, so to speak, because they have this noble intention, which is being as close as possible to the Japanese, but the thing is, is that the registers of pitch and stuff that the Japanese actors and actresses use sounds totally unnatural in English. Yeah. And so Bang Zoom dubs, as a rule, they get on my nerves. Even though the same people who might be in an anime's dub, like Cowboy Bebop, if a lot of them are also in, say, Rurouni Kenshin, but the dub for Kenshin is nowhere near as good right. as mm-hmm. the dubs for, say, Lupin the Third or yeah, Cowboy Bebop. Or, exactly. Actually, Lupin the Third isn't an anime's dub, but whatever. I actually don't think that they had uh, any Japanese track to work with. I don't know this for certain, but I know that there was a Japanese track done. Mm. It's on the DVD, but I think that it, because it was done or intended yeah, were they for done Cartoon at the same Network, time, both languages, or...? No idea. Hmm. I know it I've aired heard. in Japan first. Did it? Yeah. Typically, if it's done for Amer- an American market, that dub is done like a year ago or something before it airs. Mm. Either way, it's interesting news to hear. I know that Production IG is a couple more collaborations that they're working on, but this might make Cartoon Network a little bit weary of putting up money for anime if something not only does not very well, but does as badly as it seems like this show is doing. And you can go out now to your local Best Buy and find these box sets really cheap. I'm not saying you should go and pick it up because I don't think it's that good a show. (laughs) You know, I guess the fans just don't want to watch a show like that. I don't think the advertisement for that show is particularly good either. I remember seeing the commercials for that and just thinking, wow, that looks really totally uninteresting and and lame. Wasn't it originally those like three-minute-long shorts that were done in uh, yeah, Toonami? Yeah, I think so. Those are actually pretty basic, but I think they were a little bit more interesting than the episode-long ones were. <laughs> but uh, I guess that uh, those shorts were done because apparently it's cheaper to get Japan to animate those three-minute shorts than it is to get America to do pretty much anything else. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's that's basically the news. And as you said, we have got a very very short news segment this week. So send in your thoughts on this if you have any. Again, our email is animeworldorder at gmail dot com. Our voicemail is two zero six 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 four A W O. Or leave some comments. Or check us out on the Frapper page as well. Hi, this is Aaron and Noah, and we're a couple living in New York City. We run the Ninja Consultant podcast. Sometimes we talk about ninjas, but mostly our show is about anime. We don't do anime news because we don't know any. I know what the news is because I've heard it on every anime podcast this week. We have over 800 years of combined otaku experience, and I guess sometimes we talk about it. You can train to be an otaku or just sound like one. Choose from any of the following areas of expertise. Conventions. Fan culture. AMVs. Fan subs. Fan parodies. Fan art. Manga. Cosplay. Ninja studies. Refrigerator repair. Or get your GED. And much, much more. Can you draw this pirate? Go to www.ninjaconsultant.com and discover the wonderful world of anime art. That's www.ninjaconsultant.com. Or search for us in the iTunes... Wait, we're a couple? You were a couple. I mean, I knew that. All right, and this brings me to my review of Pluto by Naoki Urasawa. Bear with me because I forgot to actually take any notes to read off of for this segment. Shh, don't so tell this thing them that, probably gonna suck. No, no, look, I'm all about the truth. They have to believe that we're perfect. And that we just know these things off the top of yes, our heads. Yes, you, you can't reveal our secrets. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. The deal with Pluto is that it is a remake of a story from Astro Boy, which is by Osamu Tezuka. And the god of manga. Yeah, the god of comics. And this particular story is called The Greatest Robot on Earth. If you want to read this original story, Dark Horse has released it in English. It's in Volume 3 of their Astro Boy releases, and I can't believe they released all of that. I didn't think they'd do it, but they yeah, pulled it off. Yeah, that's, that's quite a task, releasing all yeah, of that Astro is. Boy. Yeah, that is. I wonder how it's sold. Astro Boy is one of those things that pretty much everybody sort of knows about, but almost nobody actually reads. So, for those of you who don't know about the premise of Astro Boy, the idea is this doctor loses his son in an accident, and so he builds a robot meant to be just like the son he lost, and the robot ends up having 100,000 horsepower, which basically means that he can fly and, you know, have super strength and somehow a machine gun's in his butt. And don't they, like, refill his oil, like, in his ass or something? Tezuka, I think, had issues. <laughs> I don't think he knew what he was unleashing upon the world, but I think it's Miyazaki who kind of is more to blame for the otaku mindset. But we can talk more about that with, uh, I don't know, Tomo or something like that. But one of the key premises of Astro Boy was that Tezuka was highly influenced by Isaac Asimov. Mm. His robot stories, Isaac Asimov stories, they all were based on these societies where humans and robots coexisted together and robots had to abide by these rules, like, oh, robots cannot harm human beings. And the laws of robotics. Yes. And those basically carry straight over in Astro Boy. Mm -hmm. And one of the key things in Astro Boy is a lot of times there's bigotry between the people and the robots because they don't think that robots should have equal rights. And a lot of it is this sort of underlying social commentary at the time because keep in mind Astro Boy was written in the 60s. Mm -hmm. So this particular story, The Greatest Robot on Earth, is about this robot named Pluto ends up being built to be the king of the robots. To be the king of the robots, it has to go and 
defeat the seven strongest robots in the world. And the story is basically about Pluto going around and basically slaughtering all these other robots from all these other countries, and it's up to Astro Boy to stop him. Obviously, since Astro Boy is for kids, there's a lot of fighting and robots being smashed up, but at the same time, it being by Tezuka, even the villain, Pluto, wasn't completely evil. It's very widely remembered, and it's got depth to it, even though it's extremely simplistic. So do check that out. And that brings us to Naoki Urasawa's reimagining of the tale. It's basically a gradient when you say that, because generally most people don't want to admit that they're doing a remake, so they'll just say, oh, I'm, I'm re reimagining this. But Urasawa lives up to the word. That sounds like corporate speak to me. Urasawa, for those who have just been tuning into the show for the first time, he is the author of Monster, which we reviewed last week, as well as 20th Century Boys and Master Keaton and lots of other good stuff. But Pluto is his latest thing. I've read the first 26 chapters. I believe that's all that's currently out in Japan. In Urasawa's version of it, he actually changes the focus of the story quite a bit and makes things such that it's a lot more like his works like Monster and 20th Century Boys in the sense that it's very serious and there's a mystery to be solved and it's not really very action-based. In fact, most of the fights happen off-camera, so to speak, and we don't really see what happens, we just see the aftermath. I mentioned that he changed the focus of it. The main character isn't even Astro Boy, or as he's called in the Japanese ones, Atom, since the original name for Astro Boy is Tetsuan Atom, or Mighty Atom. The main character in Pluto by Urasawa is, and help me with the pronunciation on this, Gerald, Geshikt. <laughs> Did I get it right? Gerald? Gerald's gone! Ah, <laughs> oh, balls. Oh, well, we can say bad things about him. I'm here, I'm here. Okay, I, there you are. I had it muted. Yes, Geshik is uh, perfectly fine. All right. Interesting to note, his original name was Gerhardt in the Tezuka tale. This character, Geshik, is one of the seven most powerful robots in the world. Now, he looks just like a human being. He's a detective for Germany. He has these abilities, like he's made of this special metal which is why he's one of the seven most powerful robots in the world. And the story opens with this murder of one of the other seven most powerful robots, Mont Blanc, who was like the Swiss robot that was loved by everyone around the world, and he was just brutally destroyed, and they left some clues behind, and then other people start being killed as well. It turns out that they suspect a robot did it, even though no robot shall harm a human, so, hmm, they have to figure that out. The interesting thing about Pluto is the same thing that's interesting about Monster and 20th Century Boys. It's that Urasawa has a really good talent of fleshing things out. Currently, Pluto is 26 chapters and is still ongoing. It's not going to run for very long just by nature of it. The original story is only like maybe a hundred pages long or so, so you gets to flesh out characters that in the original story would just show up and say, hey, I'm so-and-so robot, and then boom, they'd be killed. And so there's several chapters that take place in which the main character doesn't even show up. Very much like Monster. Yeah, yeah. I was about yeah. to say, he did that a lot in Monster, too, that Tenma would be gone for decent stretches. Right, and it was for the sake of fleshing out the supporting cast. And I like that a lot. One of the robots, especially in the early chapters, his name is North 2, or as the Scanlations call him, Norse 2, because the Japanese kind of would say Norse and North the same way. But I'm going to go with North, because that's what Fred Schott 
uses, and Fred Schott is, like, the smartest Tezuka guy on the planet. North 2 is one of the other seven most powerful robots in the world, and he is basically designed solely for the sake of war. He's a war machine. And in Pluto, his character ends up being fleshed out more so than it was in the original by way of the fact that he doesn't want to be a killer anymore. He wants to never go back to the battlefield and go against his intentionally programmed purpose, which is to be a weapon of destruction, and just learn how to play the piano or something like that. And that's an interesting story, because the person who he goes to serve doesn't want him to be anything more than just a machine. And over the course of a few chapters, you know, they come to change their mind and say, oh, maybe robots don't deserve such scorn. And a lot of Tezuka's message carries over into the remake. But Urasawa adds a lot more depth to it, because... He adds in this whole political commentary aspect of it. Stop me if you've heard this one before, but the premise to Pluto is that the United States of Thracia, led by President Alexander, suspects the kingdom of Persia (laughs) of harboring robots of mass destruction. (laughs) So they send in UN inspectors, and they determine that Persia has no... RMDs after all. But the United States invades anyway on the grounds that Persia clearly has ties to this robot terrorist, okay? Mind you, the president is secretly controlled by this other background figure which is depicted as a teddy bear that can't actually move on its own, (laughs) but does all the president's thinking for him. I wonder if the uh, king of Persia's name is uh, Darius. It is King Darius. Is it? Is it? Oh, nice. nice. Yes. I actually forgot that they had said that. Yeah. Of course, he's like King Darius the 14th. Right, right, right. But yeah, that's that's interesting. I'd love to know why Urasawa chose that reference. Yeah, there's Darius and there's Alexander. Right, and then Persia. and I mean, yeah, it's it's Thracia instead of Macedonia. Right. For those of you who aren't up to what we're talking about, these are all references to Alexander the Great. That's interesting political commentary. Obviously, this is all meant to be allegory. It's interesting because this is how Japan sees America as well, as does a lot of the rest of the world. And so all these robots end up having to fight in the war, and they end up hearing about a secret code word or organization called Bora. In the original story, Bora was this even more giant, more threatening robot than Pluto. Interestingly, Pluto doesn't actually show up in Urasawa's manga. I mean, we don't actually see him. In the original Tezuka story, he had the ability to turn into a tornado. And all we ever really see is the tornado and the menacing eyes in Urasawa's version. It's all about the investigation and the mystery and that sort of thing. Even though we hear all about how Adam is the strongest of the strong, we don't ever actually really see him do anything until about 24 chapters in, and then it's like, oh, he can fly. Yeah. That sort of thing. I hesitate to say this, but one author I particularly dislike is Yuatase because her <laughs> penchant for oh God. doing all these cheap emotional tricks gets Giving on my nerves. Giving you a character's backstory right before she kills them, just so, so yeah. make you feel that's, bad. That's her only thing. And the thing oh. is, is that that happens sort of in Pluto as well. And 
I don't know how much of it is just by virtue of the fact that he's constrained by what Tezuka did and mm. he's considering it a remake so much to the point that if you look at Pluto, it says the authors are Naoki Urasawa and Osamu Tezuka, right. even though Tezuka has been dead for decades. So he's actually trying to be very faithful to the overarching narrative. And in the original story, the robots would kind of just be there to be destroyed by Pluto. Mm -hmm. I don't know how faithful it's going to end up being. In the original story, Gerhardt ends up being destroyed by Pluto. I don't know if the character Geschicht, who replaces Gerhardt, is going to suffer the same fate. Maybe he changed the name for a reason, because now he's the main mm. character and not Adam. Mm. I was actually reading this other blog called Jog Likes Comics, or Jog the Blog. I'd actually linked to him on the Golga 13 segment I'd done a few weeks back, and he actually reviewed Pluto as well, but he'd only read the first 19 chapters of it. Now, since he's mostly an American comics guy, he likens it to the Marvel Comics Ultimate versions of things, so this would be like Ultimate Astro Boy. Mm. It only makes sense if you read comic books, that yeah. analogy, but it's basically a reimagining of the original story, basically retelling the same events, only with a more modern mindset. And also kind of a more mature take on it. Which I right, think is interesting exactly. because Astro Boy is very much this nostalgic thing for people that so many people, especially in Japan, grew up with Tetsuo on Adam or grew up with Astro Boy. And now that all these people are older, even now here, Urasawa, yeah, it's very yeah well and now that all here. these people are older, now Urasawa's redoing it. So now it's like Astro Boy brought back to people, but now it's it's been moved up for the age that these people are now. Yeah, because Urasawa writes in what Big Comic Spirits or something that's for yeah, stuff like that. adult men. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested to see what the adult men, what their take on it must be. Yeah, this was actually in Big Comic Original, I want to say, not Big Comic Spirits. Okay, so that's like 20-something, 30-something year old men? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, because Big Comic Spirits is like 40 and 50, my understanding. Could be completely wrong. The end result is that Astro Boy was originally a comic with lots of robots fighting and action and th things like that, with a bit of social message underneath it if you look for it. But if you don't want to look for it, you can just appreciate it from the robot action aspect. Whereas this is, you know, a story with hardly any action at all. And lots of political intrigue and, you know, schemings and investigation and things like that. I find it interesting that the visuals in this manga very much correspond to that. Like, he's redesigned the robots. Almost all of the robots, with the exception of Mont Blanc, look completely human. Unlike in Astro Boy, where they all look... Even Astro Boy or, or Adam, who looked... He looked relatively much like a normal boy, but you could still tell he was a robot because he had the rivets and stuff like that. In Urasawa's version of Pluto... Many of the robots, not all of them, but many of them look so human that they constantly bring up the point where people just can't really tell the difference anymore between robots and humans. Even though the society is built up like, oh, robots have to go through this yeah. door and humans have to go through this one, that. people always stop to say, oh, wow, I, I can't even tell the difference. Yeah. That that's not actually They a real mention boy. about Adam that people mistake them for real children. Some of the robots will like transform or like wear an outer suit that will look more like the original Tezuka version. But yeah, generally speaking, they, they look exactly human now. We mentioned before that Tezuka would reuse the character designs, like a set of character designs over and over, and call them his acting troupe. Urasawa actually sticks with that, but redoes those character designs in his trademark drawing style, very much like how the characters in Monster, 20th Century Boys, etc. look. 
but you can still look and say, oh, wow, this is Duke Red, or this is, you know, Blackjack? Shun Sakuban, or... Blackjack does actually appear in a cameo, although they don't actually say Blackjack's name or show his face, and he'd probably be dead by the time the story is happening, but I don't know, maybe we'll get like a cyborg robo Blackjack or something at some point. It's all very interesting, and I really hope people read it. I don't know if this is the kind of thing that'll ever get licensed in the U.S. I mean, it's good, but it's going to be short, and to truly appreciate it, you have to have read this thing from years and years ago. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It might happen. I'll never say never. Yeah. But for now, an excellent scanlation job is being done by Manga Screener. The first 26 chapters are out. That's all that's been released thus far. I highly recommend it. You can read this whole thing in a few hours. Definitely read Pluto, and that's going to do it for me this week. And with that... The coolest promo ever. Wow, Homeman Naruto. Holy cow, it just like makes me so giddy and happy as I watch it. I'm like a schoolgirl, but I'm not a schoolgirl. I'm actually a guy. But Naruto, man, when I'm not thinking about Naruto, I'm thinking about Sakura. Oh, I'm a lesbian, I think, at heart. If I was a lesbian, I'd be listening to Anime Genesis with Benu. Every week, and it's also on Thursdays on Tune Radio, but you can get it at, at benucast.blogspot.com. Yay! Believe it! Alright, and that brings us to our often overlooked segment, where I'm discussing the manga From Eroika with Love by Yasuko Aoike. Now, this is a series that's not very well known over here, but it was pretty popular in Japan. And it's actually an interesting series because it's one of the few ones that's actually. It's very long running, and so it's. It's both old school and later volumes are fairly recent. It started in 1976, and it was serialized in Princess Magazine, and it ran consistently all the way up through 1988, after which it went on hiatus. But she actually started it up again in 1995, and has continued producing volumes up until very recently. It's up to 30 volumes right now in Japan. It's being released right now in the U.S. by CMX, which usually is really bad news, given that everybody knows what a horrible job they did with Tenjo Tenge. Well, luckily, this being a classic shoujo manga, there's not really a whole lot that they need to mess with in it. It isn't like Tenjo Tenge, where there's tons of nudity and questionable subject matter that they're trying to cut out to sell to a younger audience. So, this manga, they seem to have done a pretty good job with it overall so far. What volume are they up to now? Volume 6 uh, just came out fairly recently, uh, in February, I believe. So it's up to 6 so far. Okay. They actually, with Volume 6, fixed one of the only problems that I really have with it, which was that they did their kind of crappy cover designs where they crop the cover artwork and like tilt it and take up part of the cover with all this white space where they put their title font. But it seems that with Volume 6, they finally dropped that and are just going with the full cover art on the entire cover, which is really nice. Now, From Eroica With Love is, well, it's a little bit like Lupin the Third, except with a lot more international espionage in addition to the thieving and a lot more gay. Now, this isn't a BL series. It's not a boys' lover yoi series. So there's nothing explicit. And in fact, most of the male-male content is on the level of kind of flirting. So don't avoid it just because of that. Like, if you're 
normally it would say, oh, well, I'm not going to read, you know, a BL manga. It's not BL, it's classic shoujo, and there's not really that much stuff, and there's certainly not, you know, pages of, of graphic man sex. So don't feel the need to avoid it just for that. I don't know. I, I saw a picture of uh, the main character, and I was probably turned about 10% gayer just looking at him. Well, it is a 70s shoujo manga, which means that it's uh, very flowery and, and very fabulous. Dorian is indeed quite fabulous. Now, Dorian, if I'm not mistaken, is is the hair that is actually attached to a man. Yes, Right. yes. Uh, Dorian does have that very 70s shoujo manga long mane of blonde hair. Think, uh, like, Ochofujin from Ace on But, um, he, so he does indeed have, have quite a lot of hair. But it is actually Dorian that is the main character, and not his hair. Now, I mentioned that Dorian is a little bit like Lupin Third, and what I mean is that the main character is a thief. However, unlike Lupin, where they're generally going after really valuable items or stashes of money, Dorian steals art. He basically is incredibly... Im- Cat's eye. Um, sort of, yeah. He's, he's basically really incredibly impulsive and kind of an egotist. And, and wears tights? Uh, sometimes he does. Oh, well, that's cat's eye then, yeah. <laughs> it's the 70s, so this was when men wore really tight pants. So he does often wear very tight pants and occasionally tights as well. And he tends to steal whatever catches his fancy. If he has a, a painting or a statue that he decides he really, really likes, Dorian's motto is, you know, whatever I want, I get. So he'll go and steal it. Does he fence it off afterwards, or does he just have a really pimp apartment? No, he'll keep it, because he, he steals it just because he wants it, not to sell it. To the frustration of his accountant, who is always complaining that he wastes too much money and... That he Wait a second, to. he's a thief and he's got an accountant? Well, he's also a member of the British nobility. He's actually an earl. No wonder he's so gay. Exactly. <laughs> As everyone in England decides that they absolutely hate us now. Well, they hate us already. Mm. I think we had like two fans in England. Yeah, but they all well, voted wrong. <laughs> no, they voted... No, yeah, yeah, they did actually, I'd agree. <laughs> Alright, so Dorian is kind of your your Lupin-like thief figure, except more in the realm of art than actually in the intent of making money. And yes, lots, lots, lots more gay. Now, the other way in which it's sort of reminiscent of Lupin is in the manga's kind of Zenigata figure. Except instead of this really gruff police officer who's constantly trying to catch Lupin, and who, well, doesn't necessarily always do the greatest job of it, this figure in Eroica is a man named Klaus, uh, referred to as Iron Klaus by most people, who is a military officer who works for NATO. And Klaus is a very, very strict, very serious, stern, starched shirt military type who is the polar opposite of Dorian. And they end up running into each other on one of Klaus's assignments that overlaps something that Dorian is involved in. And of course, they hate each other on first sight, because Dorian thinks that Klaus is just a complete bore. 
he has no sense of romance, no emotion, no sense of, of beauty, and Klaus thinks that Dorian is a silly English fop, and is entirely too excessive and far too ridiculous, and they proceed to get in each other's way and make life kind of difficult for each other. To the extent of a car chase that's rather interesting and in that it involves Klaus trying to chase down Dorian in his car um, in a tank. That's pretty effective, I think. <laughs> well, it depends I mean, what kind of tank, tank it is. Then, then I mean, you know they're caught. Yeah, pretty much. Except that Dorian is is far more annoying than I think even Klaus prepared for. Yeah, what, Daryl? Oh no, nothing. I was just gonna make a Mario Kart joke <laughs> that the tank oh. is pretty decent. <laughs> but later on, after their encounter, Dorian sees what may be a little bit of an unexpected to him side to Klaus and decides that he actually might have been a little bit wrong, and decides that while Klaus is abrasive and rude and harsh, that it's actually kind of fascinating, and that he is a man with a lot of honor, and that he does have his own sort of sense of aesthetics, though his tastes tend to run more towards tanks than works of art. And Dorian kind of falls in love with Klaus. And of course, Klaus wants no part of this and just wants Dorian to get the hell off of him. But he can't help but respect Dorian because while he may be silly and he may be incredibly flaming, he is a good thief and he's smart and he's crafty. And he is very much Klaus's equal. They're, they're very good at, at one-upping each other and combating against each other in trying to each get what they want. And so they walk away with Dorian having a, a massive crush and Klaus having an unexpected dose of respect for Dorian. And throughout the rest of the manga series, they continue to run into each other. Sometimes it's an unhappy coincidence. Dorian's going after a particular piece of art that usually ends up having some connection with a government mission that Klaus is on. And the two end up crossing each other's paths, to which Klaus is usually very annoyed, and they get in each other's way, but sometimes they end up helping each other out. And so this interaction between the two of them goes on and really becomes kind of the centerpiece of the manga. In fact, after a while, Klaus almost becomes the main character of the manga, more so than Dorian. And poor Dorian kind of gets relegated to being a little more of comic relief. So why is it called From Eroica With Love? The reason it's called that is because when Dorian commits his crimes, he operates under the fake name Eroica, and he leaves these cards when he steals something that say, from Eroica with love. I see. So very, very much so like mm -hmm. uh, Arsene yes. Lupin, the original gentleman yeah. thief who Lupin III was based yeah, off of. Yeah, very much. Now, Eroica does have its share of drama, often brought by Klaus and the, the fact that he's with NATO and so he's involved in all this international espionage. And remember, this started in the 70s, so a great deal of it is Cold War stuff. You know, you've got the Russians and Europe and you've America and all of this stuff is going on. And most of the missions that Klaus ends up going on, there's a lot of, you know, there's this really important piece of microfilm that's got some important information and you have to go find this microfilm and it'll be hidden in a, a statue or something that Dorian is stealing. So the two well, end up... That seems very appropriate, since a lot of the Lupin... I remember at least a couple Lupin shows had, had that, and... Yeah. I just do distinctly remember one time where Lupin had to find a microfilm that was hidden inside a woman. <laughs> You're referring to the manga yes, there, Yes, I am. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Okay. There actually was a chapter of Eroica, I think it was one of the ones that's already come out here, but I, I could be wrong, where there was a, a piece of microfilm that was actually hidden in a pair of underwear that, of course, Dorian ended up wearing, which, of course, wasn't a good situation for Klaus Seems Seems like very appropriate that it would be in Cold War and then one of the characters would be German. I suppose he's from West Germany, not from East Germany? Yes, yes. Okay. So you're saying that even though it started in the 70s, then it went on hiatus and it came back and it's, it's still ongoing. Mm-hmm. So it's still taking place in the Cold War even um, though things are happening I... now? Has the fashion sense ever been updated to reflect the contemporary times? Or if you pick up like the newest mm-hmm. volume in Japan, is it still 70s fashion sense and... I haven't really gotten to read very much of the newer volumes in Japan because, of course, the English release just started and there were some old... Actually, what's funny is there aren't really scanlations of this. The English translations that most people know were actually um, sort of old-school scanlations that were photocopied manga pages with translations pasted on and distributed as fanzines. What's interesting about Eroica is that it's actually a manga that gained popularity outside of the traditional, you know, anime fandom, which in the 80s, perhaps even the 70s, but in the 80s when this was happening was very unusual. And so it was distributed as actual fanzines, which you can sometimes still find around. What communities was it getting popular in? It had a lot of popularity in the Western Slash communities, which, for people who don't follow Western fandom, Slash is kind of like yaoi. Except, as you mentioned at the beginning, this is not one of those sorts of stories, correct? it's not a boys love manga where there's nothing but the romance story between the two lead males, and it's not really a requited relationship, and there's not actually sex in it. There is, I mean, obviously Dorian is gay, and obviously he does have this romantic interest in Klaus, but it's never really consummated, because Klaus is, well, far too uptight. Even if you believe that Klaus is gay, or is interested in Dorian, and is just incredibly, incredibly repressed, the fact of the matter is still that they never really do go anywhere in the manga. But because there haven't really been people recently updating much in the way of scanlation, so I haven't seen visuals, there are some text summaries out of some of the newer volumes. So I do believe that they've kind of kept up with the time period and that they're not really... I don't think they're still doing the whole Cold War thing anymore in it. Now, who would you recommend this, this sort of manga for? Well, definitely if you like... Old school shoujo, because it started in the 70s, it's got that very 70s shoujo art style. It's incredibly detailed, you know, really elegant, very attractive, very good art. Then definitely check it out. BL and Yaoi fans, I'd recommend it. Some people may be looking more for the straight up BL and Yaoi where the relationship really is right there and it really is the centerpiece and there is actual sex and consummated romance which Eroica doesn't really deliver. It's really more all in the realm of potential and flirting. So it's going to be up in the air, depending. I'd recommend you give it a shot. And there is always the fan community for it. Eroica isn't really hugely popular, but it does have a fairly small and dedicated fan community that's putting out some nice stuff. So give it a shot. People who are fans of Lupin might want to check it out because of some of the similarities and a lot of humor. Eroic is a very lighthearted series overall. There are serious moments, definitely, and, you know, there are some serious things that happen, and Klaus has a tendency to be kind of serious, but it is overall a fairly lighthearted series, 
and there's a lot of comedy. So check it out if you if you like Lupin at all. I'd recommend that you give it a shot because uh, it's a very fun series. There's lots of kind of zany antics and ridiculous Cold War intrigue. And... Uh, on a level at exceeding or below Golga 13. Oh, um, <laughs> I'd say way below. I don't think it's as... Um... Oh, it's not as antiky. <laughs> well, it it depends. I mean, it depends on what you mean. Like, if you mean the fact that it's kind of silly, I'd say it's probably sillier than Gogo Thirteen in the sense that. Well, Gogo Thirteen is serious business. A lot Very of the serious. setups. I, yeah, I just read I mean, Volume Two, and he ain't he ain't messing around. <laughs> a lot of the setups are pretty ridiculous. It's certainly far less violent than Gogo Thirteen, but if you mean in terms of, so it's. Are there any, like, actual historical figures or events depicted in Eroica that somehow these people operate tangentially around? Or? You know, in the bit that I've read, I don't think so. So it's not like they're rubbing shoulders with Jimmy Carter to, like, steal some microfilm that no, I mean, is going to get the CIA. No, I mean, Klaus is a major, and so he doesn't really have that much... He really doesn't have contact with really high-up famous people or anything. And even though Dorian is technically nobility, it's not like he's rubbing elbows with the queen or anything. So you, you don't see constantly um, those political figures all over the place. Although it's interesting you mentioned real people. That actually brings me to one of the fun things about Eroica. If you were around in the 70s, or maybe if you're just a big music fan, you probably are familiar with the band Led Zeppelin. There is actually a connection between Eroica, the manga, and Led Zeppelin. The main character of From Eroica with Love, Dorian Red Gloria, is modeled after Robert Plant, the lead singer of Led Zeppelin. No wonder. Yes, so the huge blonde hair and... Also the ridiculous fashion sense. I can see she actually had to tone down the blonde hair for, uh, <laughs> for Platt. And in fact, Dorian's middle name, Dorian Red Gloria, red is the same way that the Japanese would say lead from Led Zeppelin. So that's also a reference. And Dorian has a team of other guys who work with him to help him pull off the heist, like kind of like henchmen or assistants. And one of those is his accountant, uh, James, who is taken from Jimmy Page, the guitarist of Led Zeppelin. And James looks very much like Jimmy Page. He's um, small and thin, kind of a pretty face. He's got, you know, shaggy black, kind of wavy black hair that hangs over one eye a lot. He's also incredibly stingy, which is uh, also something that was taken from Jimmy Page. And he has another one of his assistants that's named Bonham, in reference to John Bonham. And in fact, in at least one of the storylines, they actually have a Zeppelin for no apparent reason. I don't know why. Is it made of lead? <laughs> it's made of lead and it just drops no, straight from the sky. No, it isn't, but um, Dorian also has a submarine called the Aquazep. So there's some interesting little references there to the band. I will say for the series, the first storyline in the first volume is a bit different than the rest of the series because Klaus isn't actually introduced until the second. The first has only Dorian, and it focuses around this trio of teenagers with psychic powers. What? Yeah, it's really weird. The first centers around these three teenagers, Caesar Gabriel, Sugar Plum, and Leopard Solid. Those are tough names. You sound like Mega Man X villains. <laughs> 
It's really, I don't know what's up with this first volume, but yeah, this first one is about these three teenagers who have psychic powers, and they run into Dorian as he's trying to steal a bunch of stuff from the National Gallery in London. And this whole, like, ridiculous set of events happens. It centers around them and Caesar getting kidnapped by Dorian, because Dorian decides that Caesar is really pretty, and... There's this really ridiculous character called Taro Banai, who is a Japanese Interpol agent who may be a, a he may be a joking reference to Zenigata from Lupin. I don't know. Taro Banai is really ridiculous. He's totally incompetent. He regards himself as like a master of disguise, but he always like disguises himself as really ridiculous things and just totally fails at trying to catch Dorian and. And it's a very strange story, and the rest of the series is not really very much like that. In the second storyline in that volume, they introduce Klaus, and that's when some of the espionage stuff and the, the interaction between them gets started. So make sure you read past that first storyline. If you get the volume, I mean, I'm assuming you're going to read the whole thing. So Some people just read bad, the things in the bookstore or whatever. To yeah, see, like, if you pick it up in the bookstore and you flip through it, Make sure you read past that first storyline, because that very first section is not what the whole book is like. Those three teenagers don't really play much of a part in the manga at all past that. In fact, I don't know... Caesar is in the second story, but I don't know if they really come back at all past that. So, if you think those three kids are stupid, don't worry. They're not, like, a major part of the series. I actually... You know, I really like this manga, and most of us thought that it would never, ever come out here. Because Yasuko Aoke is just not a manga that's really well known over here. Most of the other series that she does are these really serious historical mangas. Like what sorts of historical um, things? Like what She did eras? a series about a medieval monk. She did another series that's loosely connected to Eroica called El Alcon. Okay, it was, yeah, Seven Seas and Seven Skies and El Alcon that are sort of tied to Eroica in that the main character is uh, an ancestor of Klaus's, and it takes place in the 1500s and 1600s. And it's about, like, I guess pirates or... Yeah. The name like that. Yeah, the main character, Tyrion, was a British Navy captain who betrayed England and defected over to Spain. The other character, who is actually also an ancestor of Dorian's from Eroica's, is a pirate. So pirates are actually stealing things, as opposed to One Piece pirates <laughs> who don't really seem to do much Yeah, pretty much. Um, she did a, a one-shot called Trafalgar, about a guy who fights in the, the Battle of Trafalgar. Was it about Nelson? <laughs> no, no. She did a, another one-shot about a 14th century Castilian king. She did a, a couple of crusade mangas. And also some kind of standard uh, romance, shoujo romance series also. She did another series called Sons of Eve, which was about a, a rock band. I think Led Zeppelin was actually in that series themselves. And that uh, the characters from that show up briefly in, I think, the first volume of Eroica. And I think some of the Eroica characters showed up in that series. But how much is available in English? Is this her only English translated work? Yeah, this is the only thing by her that's been released in English so far. I'm hoping that if this does well enough, they'll bring over some of her other stuff. There's a spin-off manga called Z 
which focuses on one of Klaus's subordinates. All of the people that work directly under Klaus, he doesn't really ever bother to remember their names or call them by their names. They're just the alphabets, and he calls them all by letters. And so one of them, Z, got his own short spin-off manga, so I'm hoping maybe they'll bring that out. I just have a question, actually. You mentioned that this series has been running for a really long time, and it's very much like Lupin the Third. Are the stories standalone? Can you just pick up a volume and mm-hmm. read it and be up to speed, or do you have to read decades worth of Eroica to know what's going on? To a certain extent, the plot lines, like sometimes there'll be stories that'll stretch over like a few chapters, but most of the plot lines that happen are fairly standalone. I mean, of course, there, there may be characters that are introduced in earlier chapters that if you read like a later book, you might not know who some of them are, but it's probably not that hard to like figure out who everybody is. So it probably wouldn't be too hard to follow a later story. So yeah, um, fans of shoujo manga, uh, check this out. If you like Lupin, you might want to give this a try. I gotta cut you off, Clarissa, since we're already at, like, one hour and fifteen minutes. Anyway, here's some messages and then Gerald's segment on Katsuhito Akiyama. Hello, I'm... Insert your name. And you're listening to... Insert name of show. And now I'd just like to say... Insert funny ad-libbed comment. OtakuGeneration.net, letting you see how crazy we really are. Catch us every Wednesday for news, reviews, and stuff you can use for the otaku in you. Okay, and now we're going to do another creator spotlight. We've only done one other one before, and that one was on a very big figure in anime. That was uh, Shoji Kawamori. And now we're going to take a look at an extremely obscure person. So obscure that, in fact, I've never actually come across anybody who actually knows him by name. And we're going to take a look at a director called Katsuhito Akiyama, who has been around probably a lot longer than some of you might think, and has worked on a lot bigger works than some of you might think. A part of these series is also to, to get people to start to think about the people that work on shows. Because anime fans, as, as a rule, really don't know the people that work on shows, maybe beyond, say, the, the manga artist. Now, Katsuhito Akiyama is someone who I've been following ever since I saw... Bubblegum Crisis back in the uh, early 90s, late 80s, somewhere around there. And the only personal information I know about him is that he was born in Hokkaido, Japan, on the 29th of January, 1950. Now, he started work as an episode director as the original Macross. He was actually an episode director on that. And Genesis Climber Mospita. And he also has worked on, as a technical director, Macross, Do You Remember Love? These were all smaller projects that he did as a co-director or something like that. And so some of you might actually be more familiar with him than you might think, because Mospita and Macross were both part of the original Robotech series. But chances are a large portion of you listening have probably seen that. Now something that he actually was involved with as well, also as a director, which probably was would be very surprising, is he was a director on Thundercats. Now... Rewatching Thundercats is probably not a good idea. So if you've hey. got memories of <laughs> no, he's right. I no, tried rewatching no. it. it. It ruined my childhood to Blasphemy. rewatch it. I thought it would been so cool to rewatch it again because it's like rewatching GI Joe is still hugely entertaining, no, but just in a God, different way. G.I. Uh, well, I guess. But wa- rewatching Thundercats, it's like oh my God, this show is just. It's just bad. I'm so let down. <laughs> See, I actually have the opposite feeling. Like that's how I re- that's how I felt when I rewatched GI Joe. But I I don't know. I I still like Thundercats. I still don't mind Thundercats. Whatever. I think. Uh...
Rankin Bass is, is gold. Maybe the furries turn Daryl off a bit. That's it. Daryl just hates it because it's furry. The first work that he actually got to direct fully was one of my very, very favorite works, and this is Galforce Eternal Story. And Galforce Eternal Story was the first work that Kenichi Sonoda got to work on. Uh, he was the uh, character designer, and he went on to do Writing Bean and shows like that. And this was a very big show, a very big series back in the mid and late 80s, and it was very popular among fanboys. And it spawned several sequels. I'll probably go into Galforce in greater detail in a later show. But there was Galforce Eternal Story, which came out in 1986, Galforce Destruction, which was 1987, Stardust War, which was 88, Rhea Galforce, which was 89, Galforce Earth Chapters, which was 1989, and even later ones. But this basically set him up to work on other bigger projects as well. And the biggest project that he would work on at this time would also be the first three episodes of the original Bubblegum Crisis. For those of you in the know, also with Kenichi Sonoda, right? And some of you might uh, remember that the Bubblegum Crisis, that the original story was meant to start in part one. That's if you look at the titles for the first three episodes, they actually cover essentially what that story was going to be. Apparently, that became so popular that it went on and on and on. And uh, he didn't do the episodes beyond the the first three episodes, but uh, he basically started that. And after that, he seemed to work at, uh, apparently went to work at AIC, and went to do uh, Soul Bianca, the original Soul Bianca, and uh, Bastard, which was based on the the manga of the same name. And after that, he went to work at uh, Ganeon. He got this sort of reputation, and this reputation started when he worked on series like Magical Project S, (laughs) and Battle Athletes Victory, (laughs) and shows like that. And this reputation is is one that <clears throat> he'll take a show, and at the very last chunk of episodes, the last maybe four episodes or so, things will just turn around completely, just explode in ways that you just could never imagine. <laughs> and it usually ends up being really, really cool what he does with it. And I can't really talk about it because they're major spoilers, but both Magical Project S and Battle Athletes Victory have these last couple of episodes that are just come out of nowhere. Now, you're talking about the TV series for both of those, right? Not the OAVs. Right, good point. There was actually an OAV series for both Magical Project S and for Battle Athletes Victory, both of which are not very good. And those weren't done by Akiyama, right? No, he didn't. He actually Mm. seemed to have this tendency to take these OAV series that were done and then turn them into TV series that are much, much superior. I still think that Battle Athletes Victory is an excellent sports show, even though it's hard to call it a sports show because none of the sports that are in it are real sports. Yeah, it's kind of a crazy sports show on crack, I guess. Yeah, I suppose that's a way of putting it. And one thing I love about this guy, and one thing that drew me to him, especially in his later work, was that he would take this idea, this concept, that on paper is a horrible, horrible idea. And he will (laughs) oftentimes turn it around and turn it into a really great show. Now, case in point, Magical Project S. On paper, Magical Project S is a really shameful, pathetic attempt to try to extend the Tenshi Muyo license. It's attempting to extend it in a really bad way, too. Let's turn the main character into a magical girl. And they tried this in the OAVs for Magical Project S. It was actually called 
uh, Magical Girl Pretty Sammy, I believe. And those OAVs are terrible. Utterly, uh, just total garbage. Yeah, they really are. Yeah. Don't even think about watching those. They're just not worth it. Now, Magical Project S seems to cut its ties to Tenshi Muyo to the point where basically the only thing left are a few character names and the character designs. There's really nothing else that would relate it back to the show. Which I think was a good move, probably. (laughs) In retrospect, it seems like an excellent move, because Magical Project S is a really, really enjoyable show. It doesn't take itself very seriously, and the show is just incredibly fun to watch. I highly recommend it to anyone who wants a good laugh. And even if you don't like Magical Girl shows, it's almost done as kind of an anti-Magical Girl show. Yeah, I was about to say, like, you mentioned that, you know, Pretty Sammy, like, on paper, like, seems like such a a horrible, like, pandering excuse to do more Tenshi, and, and you mentioned that it doesn't take itself seriously, and I think you're you're pretty right about that. I think what kind of saves it is that it's almost like they turned it into a joke of itself. Like, it, the show kind of laughs at itself the whole right. way. Right. In fact, in the first episode, the main character... Pretty Sammy, she she turns into her alter ego, and she's given this wand, oh and it God. is this enormous, ugly-looking thing that seems it like is. it was purely designed to be produced in plastic. It's horrible. The very first thing she says is, oh my God, this thing is so ugly. You, from then on, you can see that the show really is not trying to take itself too seriously, and that's a good thing. And again, with Ma- Battle Athlete's Victory, which is also another show that I really love, the premise of this show is all these women are put on this satellite in order to compete in these athletic events so that they can become the Cosmo Beauty for a year, which is kind of like the uh, Miss America of the world, (laughs) or the the Miss World pageant, or something like that. And again, this is such a shitty-sounding concept. I mean, it really just doesn't sound like a very good idea. But again, I believe that he really makes it uh, a good show in the end. Again, not a show that takes itself seriously. Not at all, especially in the last couple of episodes. And they... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I still can't get over that. <laughs> yeah, trust me, this is a show worth picking up, and you can find it really cheaply. It, it is worth giving a shot because it is very, very fun. The DVD release for this was one of the very first anime DVDs ever released. Yeah, it's got some, some strange authoring decisions. but Yeah, uh, there's only one opening and one ending, and everything else is just sort of mashed together. Yeah. And again, there was a six-part OAV series that came before it. It's, it's not, not very good, though. It's not very good, especially when compared with the uh, TV series. It's not as bad as... Magical Project S's to no. to the OAVs. Those were just unwatchably bad. Another show that he had worked on as a director, he was actually a series director on it, which is a little bit more recent, was uh, The Legend of Black Heaven. And he actually appears in the show towards the end in one of the preview segments and is rather entertaining. Again, the show is sort of uh, Macross with Hard Rock. Hard Rock Save hard the Space. Rock save the space. Right. But I, I thought the show was very good up until the last episode. Another project that he's worked on was Armitage Dual Matrix. The Armitage Polymatrix, I'll admit, is not very good. Yeah, I was about to say, was that the good Armitage or the crappy Armitage? <laughs> yeah, in my opinion, Armitage Dual Matrix is, is quite good. I enjoyed it a lot. Okay. Armitage Polymatrix I didn't enjoy at all, and I'd never seen the original Armitage OAVs. One other show that he directed that, that completely comes out of the blue for me that I'm still trying to absorb, 
is Aino Kusabe. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> At least uh, apparently, according to what we can find listed. Not only according to Anime News Network, but according to the official website of uh, AIC. Oh, really? Okay. Akiyama directed this. Now, for those who don't know, Aino Kusabe is something that Yoi fans look on as kind of the pinnacle of Yoi and sh- Yoi-related animation. Yeah. Whenever any guy says, oh, all the guys in Yoi look like girls, and they're all so girly and whiny and all that, and, you know, you might as well just change their names to girls, they always bring up Aino Kusabe, because the guys in this actually look like guys. And it's a very, very well-animated show. I haven't watched all of it yet. Um, but uh, <laughs> maybe Clarissa can say something more about that. Um, yeah. I mean, it is kind of regarded as as one of the best examples of, of animated, you know, material in in the sort of, you know, BL area. It's uh, based off of novels, um, Tanbi novels, and uh, it's a science fiction uh, storyline that uh, has some, some social commentary along with some messed up, doomed romance plotline that's you know, really well done. Um, they, they did have a really good budget. The animation is really good. Got a really good cast of voice actors. It's really one of the best things that we have animated-wise out of that, in that area. Right. And again, I have no idea how he got the job for that. But as you can see, he, he, he took it and I think he did as good a job as you can do with that. And apparently it, it is considered probably the best thing that's been done animated-wise mm-hmm. in that. He's still working today, by the way, and he just finished a TV series called Monkey Turn, which was sort of like Initial D, except with uh, speedboats. <laughs> I've only seen one episode of it, so I can't really comment. And uh, he's also working on the brand new Giver TV series. I believe only one or two episodes has ever been subbed of that, because it was actually uh, co-produced by AD Vision. I, I think there are actually soft subs out are for there? the entire okay. thing. But I think only one or two were hard-subbed, maybe? The original Giver, well, opinions vary on that, let's say. <laughs> and the one c- screenshot that I've seen of the show, for, to give you an idea, the original Giver was a pretty dark show, very violent, about this guy that encounters the suit that turns him into a superhero, and he has to fight these very sort of Sentai-like monsters in the process. The only screenshot I've seen from the new Giver show shows him with this very happy background giving the V sign. I don't know exactly what he's going to do. That's what I think of when I think of the Giver. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm hoping that he's going to kind of follow it with what we've seen of him and kind of take it in a different direction, or at least maybe do things with it that we won't expect. I don't know. I mean, I haven't watched the show, but I, I did see little bits and pieces of, like, the first episode... And there certainly was still some good action scenes in there. I mean, it wasn't as bloody as the original, but then again, it's a TV series and not right. OAVs, so that may have something to do with it. But it certainly still a, seems to be a pretty good action series, at least judging from what I saw of that one episode. Right. If you've seen more of the show, then be sure to email us at uh, animeworldorder at gmail.com or give us a call at uh, 206-666-4AWO. But you might be thinking, well, we're doing a creator spotlight, and we're doing this relatively obscure director. Why aren't we doing someone like Mamoru Oshii or Hayao Miyazaki? And not saying that we won't do those, but really the idea behind this is to think about the people that work on these shows. 
And I'm a big fan of Katsuhito Akiyama, and I've followed his work, and whatever work comes out of his, I, I'll take a look at it, and I've generally enjoyed his work. And I think that people should start to think more about the people that work on those shows. If you are a fan of a certain show, check out who the director is of that, and then see what other works that they've done. And that's what I did way back in, uh, what, 1991 or so, when I saw The Bubblegum Crisis, and I wanted to see what else this guy had done. And I found out that he'd done these other works like Galforce. And I've been following him ever since and been pleasantly surprised. Katsuhito Akiyama, he may not be up there anywhere close to, say, Miyazaki or Mamoru Oshii. I don't think that that makes him a bad guy. I think that he's still got works that are worth checking out. And give some of his works a shot. And if you like it, find out some more work that he did and uh, go check those out too. Okay, and that concludes this week's episode of Anime World Order. Coming up next week, we'll have special guest Tim Eldred, who's worked on comic books like Cybersuit Arcadine, Ground Zero, and his upcoming comic being published this summer, Grease Monkey. He's done comic adaptations of anime like Lensman, Harlock, Robotech, Votoms, MD Geist, and Project Aiko. And he's also worked in directing and storyboarding for a lot of Western animation, like the MTV Spider-Man and Teen Titans and the Batman. And he's worked on anime DVDs like Voltom, Sp- Star Blazers, Yamato, and he also worked on the documentary about Yamato, Space Battleship Yamato, The Making of an Anime Legend. And you can email us at... AnimeWorldOrder at gmail.com. And you can also reach us through our voicemail at 206 666 4 that's 206-666-4296. Yeah, we're definitely going to be spending a lot of time with Tim. We're, Tim yeah, knows so much about Votoms and Star Blazers and Yamato. Yeah. If you want to know anything about those shows, or if you're a fan already, or if you want to be, this will be the episode to tune into for that next week. Right. Yeah, he's been around from like the very beginning of Anime Fandom in the U.S., yep. so we'll also be talking to him about the old days of fandom, long before even any of us were there. Yeah. <laughs> Tim Eldred was there, so S- stick around, tune in. So, uh, until next week, I'm the Alpha Internet male, Daryl Surratt. I keep saying that, like like it's going to catch on. I don't care. Whatever. <laughs> I'm Daryl Surratt. And I'm Clarissa. And I'm Gerald. We'll see you again next week. <laughs> <laughs>